You're listening to the Journey to Launch podcast, how Erica Grant went from making $35,000 a year to becoming a millionaire. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant. As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, 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 journeyers. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast. It's Jamila Souffrant, your chief launch officer, and I am back with another amazing conversation that you need to hear. Real, real quick, I just have to let you know that doors to the Money Launch Club are open. So if you listen to this in real time, this episode comes out on Wednesday, November 6th, and the doors to the Launch Club close on November 8th. So what exactly is the Launch Club? Now, if you've been under a rock, because I feel like I talk about the Launch Club quite often, but if you're just still not sure, you don't know what it is, you're wondering if it's for you, first, go to moneylaunchclub.com. So there is where you can find out more information. But I just want to quickly tell you about what you can do with the help of the Launch Club. So the Launch Club is an online membership community where you get the steps, tools, education, and plan to help you reach your financial goals. And it's online, but we also have members who actually meet in person. So once you join, you have opportunities to connect and meet in person. We've had a number of New York City meetups where members have organized that. But essentially, it's your one-stop shop to get the support that you need to reach your financial goals. Because oftentimes in the real world, right, you get excited when you listen to this podcast, you're all pumped up. And then when you go into the real world, it's kind of lonely because there may not be too many people who get what you're doing. And so this community is your online safe hub where you can meet people just like yourself, journeyers just like you. Maybe they have different challenges or they're at different starting points because we do have a wide range of where people are. Some people are still in debt payoff mode. There are some people who have paid off debt due to the resources in the Money Launch Club and the support. And then there are some people who are a little bit more advanced and they're interested more in investing and growing their net worth. And so we have such a diverse group of people. And the best thing about it all is that it's a real safe space. So there's a no judgment zone here. So you come as you are, you ask questions, and you're able to connect with each other. Now, the question that I get asked a lot is if this community is on Facebook. And no, it's not. So this is not a community held on Facebook. It's actually outside of Facebook, which I think is pretty cool and beneficial because it kind of keeps you away from that. You know, the ecosystem of Facebook, when you're logging into the Money Launch Club, you can really focus on what you're there for. It does have an app, so you can download it to your Android or iPhone. You can also access the Money Launch Club on a desktop. And with that, you get the community. So you get to meet other people just like yourself, ask questions, jump into conversations. We also have monthly group coaching calls with me. So you can come on video chat with me, ask questions and meet other members. We also have a book club. So every other month, we select the book, we read that book, and then we come together and discuss it. We also have podcast after show chats. So we have guests who come back on to the Money Launch Club. So if you had a guest that you really liked and we had a number of them so far, they come back into the Money Launch Club and they get on video and they chat with members and members can ask questions. We also have 
guest experts come in and teach classes. And so we've had classes on credit. So really understanding how to increase your credit score and what your credit is composed of. We had classes on how to really find your dream job and so much more. And the best thing about this is that even if you join today, you get access to the resources, the library of all the other classes that we have recorded. So you can literally go through the library and pick what you want to watch. And then, of course, we have new content added every month. On top of that, there are weekly and monthly challenges which hold you accountable to your goals because that's super important. And the list goes on and on. Members who join and who use the resources are able to make major strides in their finances. They're paying off debt. They're changing their mindset, which is like my favorite part of the transformation. They are literally accomplishing their goals. And I just want to remind you that this is an investment. Literally, this is not a bill. So there is a monthly membership fee or investment, or there's an annual investment. And literally, this is not another bill that you're adding to your plate or to your budget. I've had someone say that when they joined, one of the things that they thought about was, wow, like I feel like I'm adding another bill, you know, a monthly bill or annual bill. And so I just want to say this is not a bill. This is an investment to help you earn more, pay off debt and reach your financial goals. And when you switch your mind frame and your mindset like that, it becomes a no brainer why you should join us. And so if you've been following me on all social media platforms, so Instagram or Facebook, I've been yapping about it all week. I've even had some lives with Money Launch Club members on my Instagram so far. You can see how great it's been or even testimonials, right? So go to moneylaunchclub.com to join us. We're waiting for you with open arms. And literally, if you really love this podcast, but you want to take it to the next level, to the next step and get the support that you need, join us in the Money Launch Club. So moneylaunchclub.com. Doors are only going to be open until November 8th, end of day. And the reason why I close doors to the launch club is one, I like to focus on members, right? And so that takes a lot of work to create the content. And so I'm really dedicated to making sure that I'm providing the best experience. And then I am just also wanting to make sure that you guys know like, hey, this is your chance. This is your chance to join. So I hope to see you there. And now let's get on with the show. Now I'm talking to Erica Grant. She reached out to me via email. Now, I get a lot of emails nowadays. You know, there's a lot of people who want to be on the podcast to share their story. And I totally get it, right? Like I get the kind of interest to be on the podcast and to kind of come on my platform to do that. And I got to be honest though, like I can't possibly have everyone on that reaches out. And I also don't want to have just everybody on. Even if you have like an amazing story, it doesn't always fit in the direction or the narrative and the voice I'm trying to create or what I'm doing with my podcast, right? Like I literally look at myself as not just talking about money and finances. It's deeper than that. It's I'm creating and I'm I'm telling a story. And so I really look for stories like deep within the emails I get. Or for me, what I actually love the most is when I find people that I want to have on. Like they don't even reach out to me. I just kind of see what they're doing or I see a pinch of something and I'm like, who is this? I need to learn more. And so Erica reached out to me via email. And you know what captured me is that she basically said, listen, I am a black woman who started out really with nothing, started making $35,000 a year in New York City. And I started to make six figures within five years of that in the same company, but switching roles and like going after it. 
Then she proceeded to say how she was now, after all these years, like financially independent. She's a millionaire now. Her net worth is in the million. And how she did that. And she wanted more women, especially women of color and black people to understand like this was possible because she was able to do it. And so I was like, hmm, right? And so I really just, I was pulled and drawn to Erica's story because one, I love, again, finding unique voices, finding people who've actually done it, right? I love people in the journey because we need to see what it's like, right? But also to give that hope that it's possible by showing you there are people out here doing it. And now Erica owns multiple real estate properties. You'll hear her talk about that. And she is working because she wants to. So she still has a W-2 job and her passive income that she makes exceeds her W-2 income, but she chooses to work still. And she was just, she reached out because she was like, you know what, I need to share my story so I can show other people who look like me that this can be done. And I was like, all right, let's do this. So you're going to hear Erica's story in a bit. Now, I love that you're tuning in and listening. And as always, as I always say, if you are loving this podcast, please don't forget to share this with a friend. This particular episode, I think, will be very motivating and inspiring. So share it with someone in your life that needs to know this. Share it on your social media. Tag me at Journey to Launch. Let me know something that you took away from the episode. And then also, remember, this the whole resources podcast is totally free, right? And so my, I guess, gift to you every week is giving you the tools, inspiration, and necessary just you know, insight on what it will take for you to reach your financial dreams. And really what I love to see if, you know, if you could just do me a favor is the sharing of the episodes. And if you listen to this Apple podcast, that purple app on your phone is to rate, review and subscribe because I literally read every review. Now, don't forget to follow me on social media at Journey to Launch on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. If you want to keep really in touch with what's going on with me, Go to journeytolaunch.com slash join and there you'll get a chance to join my weekly newsletter list. So oftentimes I share things faster than I can on the podcast, right? It's, I, it goes out every week and that's the best way to keep in touch and get insight and actually freebies into some things that I'm doing that I won't typically announce publicly. I just announced to my email list. So go to journeytolaunch.com slash join. And if there's something that we mention and I say, hey, go to the show notes for more information, Go to journeytolaunch.com slash episode 125 to get more information. All right, without further ado, let's hop into this amazing conversation with Erica. Okay, journeyers, I'm back with what I think. I really just know. I feel it in my bones. <laughs> this is going to be a great conversation that will change the trajectory of a lot of you your journey because I have on Erica Grant on the podcast and you reached out to me and what, you know, I get a lot now emails of people reaching out and wanting to be on the podcast, but I'm always, my ears always like perk up or eyes light up when I see a woman, especially a black woman. Um, and the way you presented it, it was like, listen, I need to share my story because I want more people who look like us to see that this can be done, that you can reach financial independence uh, and this is just something I, I want to make sure my audience and juniors here. So welcome to the podcast, Erica. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Now, before we press record, you talked about kind of like what prompted you to 
want to share this and you're talking about being in a cab and so, so here's the thing about i guess podcast episodes and people who come on the podcast right like you'll get a lot of people who say like i love your guest and even like if i'm listening to other podcasts because i think i hopefully do a good job in bringing on a diverse like range of people who are not only fellow personal finance like bloggers or podcasters and writers but just like regular people right who just found a way to optimize their finances and are doing amazing things but the thing about it is it's kind of hard to find people who are not who don't have like a podcast or blog or business because like they're not like necessarily raising their hand and saying, hey, I want to put myself out there. But you emailed me. and You're like, listen, I need to put myself out there or, or let your audience know about this because of this incident um, that happened in the cab. So can you just talk about that? Yeah, sure. So it was actually an Uber because I, I kind of hate cabs low key due to racism when I was living in New York. But that's a whole other story. Um <laughs> But yeah, my husband and I ran an Uber in our rather affluent uh, neighborhood in Atlanta. And the guy picking us up was going on about how, oh, I pick up rich people in this neighborhood all the time. And I pick up millionaires all the time. And they do this and they do that. And he and I just kind of looked at each other. And this was a black man talking to me and my husband, who are two black people. And it, it just dawned on me, like he assumes, just like all of the non-black people in this neighborhood, that we don't have anything and that we're not as wealthy as the people we live around. And it kind of broke my heart. And it was also a light bulb moment of we need to stop being low key with our story. I need to share my story that there are black millionaires who are in their thirties and didn't come from money and just look like regular black people and other black people need to know that. Um, Cause it really was like, of course, at that moment we didn't say, Hey, we're millionaires. Stop talking about us. Like we're not part of this. We kept quiet, but afterwards I had that sense of, I need to stop being quiet about this so that people know, A, we're out here. It's possible for all of us. And it really wasn't that difficult to do. Mm, Yeah. So that was one of the main reasons I reached out. And then the other, we went to the Catching Playing With Fire documentary. There was a screening in Atlanta and pretty much everyone who was speaking was on the path to fire. And we met a bunch of cool people at the event. And it seemed like we were the some of the only people, if the not the only people who had actually reached financial independence. So again, I was thinking, we need to share our story just because so people can see it's possible, it's doable in your 30s. Yeah. And you know, that's the thing. So, you know, I talked to a wide range of people who are on the journey, who have reached it. Um, and I love talking to people who have reached it. While talking to people on the journey is great because it gives people who are still in the midst of it like a lot of fuel. But then like what is what it's what it's like on the other side, you know, like this is actually possible and showing that. And so you're actually, you reach financial independence. You work because you want to, which is like the goal for everyone, like amazing. So I want to talk about how you made that happen. Um, and then one of the things you wrote, you said that you went from making 35,000 a year to six figures within the same company. You own real estate. You bought your first place at 25? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. In New York City. So all this amazing stuff. So, you know, we have to like kind of go back um, and talk about like how you were able to make that happen. So first, what was your career in when you first started making 35000 a year? Yeah. So I graduated from college in New York. I'm originally from the upper Midwest. I'm from Minneapolis, but went to college in New York, graduated making $35,000 a year as an ad sales planner for um, a major media company in New York. And I thought I wanted to be a journalist. I was an English major. And I realized really quickly a couple of things about being an English major and starting on kind of more of a qualitative or like, I don't know what you call it, liberal arts type of career path. First of all, it's very subjective. So even though I thought I was a great writer, somebody else could look at my writing and say, no, we don't think you're very good. It was very subjective. 
And as a person of color, I think it puts you in a vulnerable position when you are in subjective roles, because quite often we're judged as less than simply because we might not have the right look or have gone to the right schools or have the right family connections. And so I really quickly, even though I was in that media company and initially had joined thinking I want to move to the journalism side and be a writer for one of their magazines, just by the grace of God, really, I was at a company networking event and sat next to a woman who worked in market research, which is the field I'm in now. And she was telling me about her job. You know, oh, I I deal with statistics, but I also get paid to just take people to dinner and talk about Essence Magazine or Time Magazine and what they think of it. And then we take that information and create articles and and make the, the magazines better and more marketable. And I literally said to her, I'm like, your job sounds exactly like what I would want to do. And so we exchanged information. We kept in touch. And about uh, maybe three or three, maybe six months later, she called me and said, hey, we have a research assistant position available on our team. Would you? And, And I applied. It was an internal transfer. And so just that little move, you know, taking the time to chat with someone and build a relationship and just a little bit of luck. Um, allowed me to move and uh, immediately have a jump in my salary of about 10K just with that move. And then I worked my way up through the ranks within the research organization at that company and saw my income go from 35000 to in the 50s within the space of like a year. And then I did, after about three years at that company, have to move to another market research firm doing more of a quantitative role. So calculating data, programming surveys, which I learned on the job. Again, English major. I didn't take a single math class in college and I just figured it out. And my income just exponentially increased. And I was making six figures uh, by the time I was probably 26, 27, I would say 27, and have been in the solid six figures ever since then, simply by making a small shift from a kind of more of a liberal arts qualitative career path to more of a quantitative career path, which for me has been market research. Yeah. And that's been the theme I've seen from honestly, every person that I've spoken to that has done something like you're doing in terms of like increasing their income, net worth and reaching their financial goals is that at one point they never thought, right? Like their, their, their path was this and it was like maybe just a more liberal skill set or just like writing something that necessarily doesn't always command the most money, but changing and pivoting to doing something else and focusing on income and also focusing on opportunities. And that's what I love about everyone, especially like your story is that, you know, you saw something and here's the thing. Sometimes you really need to raise your hand and ask questions because if you see someone doing something that looks interesting and maybe it's something that you might want to do is to ask questions and to say and and let them know that's something you're interested in because you never know. Because look at the lady, she reached out back to you and said, hey, this is available. Do you want to apply? Absolutely. And it, it really changed the whole trajectory of my career and my life. So you're absolutely right. You just have to, when opportunity knocks, like open the door. Even if you're scared, I did not have the skill set for that job. I ended up having to go to grad, back to grad school because as I was getting promoted, I was you know managing people who had statistics degrees. And I was an English major who hadn't taken a single math class in college. So I actually had to go back to school and take statistics and so that I could then be a leader in a field that I really, <laughs> I don't want to say I had no business being in because anybody can be in any field. You can learn on the job, but I had to get some of those hard quantitative skills. So just be flexible, follow opportunity. And honestly, especially as people of color and women, quantitative roles are your friend because it is a lot harder to dismiss you when you have numbers in your back pocket. And that's just the truth, you know, in, in subjective fields, 
where there's a lot of beauty is in the eye of the beholder or talent is in the eye of the beholder. Quite often, we unfortunately just don't get judged as being worthy. But when you are dealing in something quantitative where you can say these are the numbers or um, now I've moved into more of a sales account management role. And that is really great because I can say, hey, I'm at 333 percent to my goal. Now tell me I'm not you know, worthy. You can't. Right. Numbers, numbers do not lie. And so the more you can have numbers behind you, the better you can kind of um, success proof your career and command higher salaries. Oh, I love the success proof your career, right? Because like you said, you can't deny the numbers. So how were you financially at this point? Were you someone like, what's your background? Like, did you, when you went to college, did you graduate with loans? Were you good with your money at this point, just starting out? Yeah. So I come from a solidly middle-class family, both of my parents, and these are advantages I have to acknowledge, right? So both of my parents did go to college. My parents, we were solidly middle-class. I didn't have any um, sort of inheritance but I have the kind of family that will sacrifice anything for the kids. So my parents literally, when I look back on it, it's kind of horrifying how much they sacrificed so that I could go, I had a full ride to a a state school where I grew up. And then I had like a 50% scholarship or maybe 70% scholarship to Columbia university. And they were like, go, we'll, we'll make it work. So between me working, I worked all through college, one or two jobs. My parents paid as much as they could and then I took out student loans for the rest. And I graduated with about, I want to say 13000 somewhere between ten dollars and $13,000 of student debt, which is really low for a school that expensive. And then I paid that off. And then I actually ended up uh, helping my parents pay off their what they still owed on my education because I was horrified to find when I was like in my late 20s, my parents were still paying somehow $1,100 a month towards my student debt that they had taken out on my behalf. So I took that over and paid off the rest of it. But yeah, it was definitely, I, I had debt, but it wasn't crippling. Like a lot of my friends who graduated with like $100,000 worth of debt, I was lucky enough not to have that sort of heavy burden on my shoulders. And so I give my parents full full credit for that because they, they sacrificed. Mm-hmm. What an amazing uh, gift that that was. And then that's, I mean, awesome. Like, I know that's what you know, you just part of what you did, but like to then take back those loans and pay them off, right? Like that kind of integrity and just relationship, right? Is like the kind of like that kind of support and love between and money is part of it. But it's like also something that I've seen a theme that having parents that even though they don't have much will like put education first, put like try to give the baton to their kids to like help them finish the race ahead is really like such a privilege um, that um, a lot of people also have or are lucky to have. Okay. Yeah. So the thing I did not mention, and I should have, I should have been the start and I'll probably, I would have said this already in the intro that I recorded before this, but your net worth is 1.35 million, right? You are a millionaire. (laughs) You said that, Mm -hmm. you said that, but I wanted to just say that number just in case like, be like, okay, listen, like she knows what she's talking about um, in terms of how she's been able to grow her wealth and reach financial independence. But one of the things I want to touch upon is how you bought your first property at 25. So this is in the middle of your career, right? Like this was when you're transitioning, how much were you making? What were you, what was your mindset at this point buying this property? Yeah. So I was still pretty poor by New York standards at this point. I was making, I would say low forties. And so really most people be like, you have no business looking to buy anything. And I didn't really set out to buy something that young. It just, again, opportunity sort of landed in my lap. So I was living in Harlem. I love Harlem, but it was still up and coming at that point and very affordable in pockets. 
And I had just been saving, saving, saving. So even though I was only making $35,000 a year when I graduated and, you know, I lived with roommates and I had managed to put aside about $25,000 and I didn't have any idea what I was saving for. I just had been raised to be a saver. So I was squirreling money away for whatever and saw um, an apartment or co-op, which is the New York version of a condo posted on Craigslist that looked really good. Two bedrooms, thousand square feet across from a park below 125th Street, which was at that time an important distinction in, in Harlem, just because it was a little bit considered closer to like the heart of the city in Manhattan. And so I took my lunch break, took the train up um, and met the owner who actually showed it to me. The owner's husband showed it to me and I loved it. And they had it listed for $145,000, I think, which I was so, I don't want to say broke, but I just didn't even have it. I did the numbers with the mortgage and the um, HOA or what they call maintenance fees, it was going to be a little bit out of my budget. And so I told him, I was like, I love it, but I just can't afford this. And at that time, again, Harlem was still, that was a part of Harlem that was not as desirable yet. And so he called me back, their realtor called me back and said, well, what if we sell it to you for a hundred thousand? Oh, wow. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And I was like, okay, (laughs) I know. So I have to, you know, like somebody upstairs is looking out for me, but it was meant to be my place. Like I really loved it. My mom happened to be in town right that weekend when I was making the decision. So I took her up there and it was, that was really my first lesson in trusting your intuition because all of my friends were like, why would you move to that part of Harlem? Like that, eh, it's rough over there. Everybody else lived on a different side of, you know, on the West side of Harlem. And this is more, not all the way East, but kind of Um, If anyone knows New York, like Mount Morris Park area, but I just felt it. I felt that the neighborhood was a gym. It was special. I felt that the apartment was special. And even though it was going to be a stretch for me, I just went for it. And I literally put down my entire $25,000. And that was what helped persuade the co-op board to approve me because they're like, wow, this girl is young. She doesn't make a ton of money, but she has great savings. She has great credit. She fits in the building. And this is where I talk about, you know, there's a lot of disadvantages of being a woman of color, but here is where being a person of color is a huge advantage because I was black moving into predominantly black and brown neighborhood. And that resonated with the people on the co-op board because I looked like I could be their niece or their daughter or their sister. And it gave me, and same with the person who was selling the apartment. And so that allowed me to get a foot in the door at a really pivotal time. And that was a huge part of building my wealth was buying that apartment for $100,000 that I was then able to sell for four times that and take that equity and buy a bunch of other real estate that has led to me being financially free. I love that. Um, and I was going to ask you um, uh, if the people that sold it to you were black. And this is where it's that stuff where people say like, like there is privilege in this world. There's different levels, right? But there is an overall privilege because, and this is what they say, um, the sexual thing, because I have now, I have kids. And they talk about the importance of having teachers that look like your kids, because while most teachers are like amazing, when a teacher can see themselves in the children that they teach too, it makes a difference in the idea that, you know, you don't want your kids to be overlooked or that you want them to be looked out for because they're, you know, that could be, that could be their grandson or son or something, right? Like, and no one's potentially or purposely sometimes discriminating against or not giving people chances, but it's just like a natural inclination to have an affinity who you feel like, Oh, to look like you. Exactly. And so when, and when people are in power, a lot of people in positions of power, 
are not of color and you know it's not that they always purposely like give the <laughs> give the first look or the second chances to people who look like them but most times that does happen mm-hmm. and so it's that's why it's so important for us just as like a people and the diversity matters because the more diverse um the, like the gate holders or keepers or what that is the more diverse those people look the more people the more diversity can like be let in and given a chance to succeed Amen. Yeah. And a lot of people in this country don't want to talk about it, but it's real. And when I look back at my story, like when I talked to you about the woman I was sitting next to who had basically my dream job and then helped me get a research assistant position, guess what? She was a black woman from the Midwest who just like me. So she saw something of herself in me. And I think that's why representation matters. Obviously, we all want to help different types of people. And not everybody only helps people who look like them, but there is something to be said for having people in positions of power and ownership who look like you. It's just, it's real. And it's the more we can then reach behind ourselves and help others through those doors that have been previously closed to us. I think the whole country rises or the whole community, you know, it's, it doesn't just help that one person you helped it. It has rippling effects to generations. So yeah, that's an important point. Yeah. Okay. So you sold this like four times worth what you bought it for. What made you decide to sell? Because so I, similar story with you is I bought a condo, it was a, uh, a studio apartment in Dumbo before it was officially like known as the Dumbo it is today in New York, well, in Brooklyn. And I, it has also appreciated it a lot. Now I have not sold it. I feel like, you know, I'm probably going to hold on to this forever. I feel like I'm at the point <laughs> where I won't be able to get back in like at this, well, not today, at least maybe in the future as the future Jamila who earns in his gazillionaire can do that, but not right now. <laughs> So how did you decide that, okay, I need to sell and then use this to build up my portfolio and to, to build more wealth? It, it's a complicated situation because I really did not want to sell. And I regret, that's probably my biggest regret is selling it because I think it is a million dollar apartment and will be a million dollar apartment. That's, it's a really special place, but life happens. You know, I got married. I was living in Atlanta where I still live. And the bottom line was I first did uh, what they call house hacking, where I had a roommate. I had a two-bedroom apartment, so I rented out the other bedroom and had a roommate. And then I moved to Georgia for grad school and then accidentally became a landlord because obviously I was down in Georgia. So, And I realized, wow, I'm making $1,000 a month on this place and I don't have to do anything because it had a super, it was a newer building, like it was super low maintenance as a landlord. But then over the years, even though my fellow neighbors love me, they kind of realized, okay, Erica's not coming back to New York. And so I started to get some pressure, like, look, you're supposed to be living here, blah, blah, blah. And I, I came back to New York at least once a, once a month, was renting always to people who I had an understanding with. This gets very complicated, but long story short, <laughs> I felt pressure to sell. And so I, I sold a little bit before I would have wanted to. If it was in my choice, I would still have that apartment. Um, and I probably still should. I, I allowed myself to get pressured a little bit. And then I also had a lot of opportunity knocking in other places. So simultaneous to this, I bought a place in Atlanta and my husband and I had started to investing in suburban Detroit. And this is where you, I have to talk about some of the disadvantages of being a person of color. We really ran into trouble finding uh, loans or people to give us money so that we could continue our investments in suburban Detroit, even though they were killing it. I mean, we were making money hand over fist and, but the banks just kept saying no. And so it kind of was like a perfect storm of I'm getting pressure to sell. And I have these other things I want to invest in and don't have the cash. And so it was, I, I, I sold and then used that money to 
build our portfolio. Right now we have eight rental units, one of which we're living in. So seven that are actually rented out. And that's what led to us being financially free. So it was probably the right move to sell. But I honestly, if you have real estate in Manhattan or New York, like it's only going to go up. So if, if there was a way I could have kept it and then also invested in these other properties, that would have been perfect because I would probably be a lot richer than I am now. <laughs> right. Okay. So in terms of real estate, what made you decide that real estate was going to be this lever of financial independence that you would optimize or pull, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, real estate chose me again, that, that first apartment, I had saved $25,000 and didn't know it was going to be to buy an apartment, but the apartment kind of fell into my lap a little bit and I bought it. And then I accidentally became a landlord when I moved to Georgia, to go to graduate school. And I realized, wow, there are great margins if you buy right. So again, on that first apartment, I was making it easily $1,000 a month in profit after expenses. And then I realized, wow, this is a great source of side income. And then I repeated that process with a townhome in Atlanta, which I now live in, was making about $1,000 a month in profit on that. And then uh, my husband had a job situation where he had to be based in Detroit. So we bought a place in suburban Detroit. He rented out the other rooms to his colleagues. Um, He's an airline pilot, so he rented out to other pilots. And literally within a week of us buying that property, we had a waiting list eight deep and properties were dirt cheap in suburban Detroit. So we were like, okay, let's buy another property two blocks away. We bought that property. It was full within a week and we had a waiting list eight deep. And so it was kind of like a ripple effect. And all of a sudden I'm the proud owner of, you know, seven or eight rental units, all uh, filled with pilots and flight attendants. And each of them is generating about a thousand dollars a month after expenses because we were able to buy so low and because of the unique business model we have renting to pilots and flight attendants. Mm. I wish I could say I had a master plan. <laughs> yeah, it just unfolded. Yeah, like, it, and, and it's following opportunity, right? So when you see something that's really working for you, try to repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it until you can't anymore or it stops making sense. And that's really what happened for us. So with the, and just in terms of like logistically, so I know you said you had 25,000 down. So you bought, you got it, took out a mortgage for the uh, Harlem co-op with the Atlanta one. Did you do the same? Did you have to put uh, the, a certain percent down? How did you come up with that money to do that? Good questions. Yeah. So I've always been a saver. So the place in Harlem was generating a thousand dollars a month. And again, I'm still making six figure salary. My husband's making a very good salary as well. And so we're saving, 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 decided to buy in Atlanta after we got married. And that one, at that point, co-ops are unique because you have to put down a lot of money and like just be the perfect candidate to get into co-ops. Buying a townhome in Atlanta was a piece of cake in comparison. So I think we put 10% down or 15% down, bought that place, moved in and then ended up renting it out, then moved back in. And then that one is now paid off. So that's the other subtext because you know, we live so far below our means and make really, really good W-2 salaries. We tended to buy cash or pay off properties pretty quickly because I like to invest in areas that are undervalued. So I don't want to buy in the most expensive, desirable area. I want to buy in the area that I think I see something special in, but other people haven't quite yet tapped upon it. But I'll look for things like proximity to city center, proximity to public transportation, good views, like things like parks and quiet streets, good architecture stock or building stock, you know, attractive looking housing that may be a little bit run down, but you see those bones where like, these are beautiful properties. They just need a little bit of love. 
And so far that has proven us quite well because everything we bought has doubled, tripled within a couple of years of us buying it, just because we're always a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of where other people want to live. And we just have a knack for, I should say, I have a knack for getting there first because my husband's a little bit more risk averse. Um, but I'll usually talk him off the ledge like, no, I ran the numbers and I feel good about this area. <laughs> and then after time of it all, you know, working out now, he trusts a bit more. Okay. And so a lot of the other places are in Detroit. Suburban Detroit. And I make that distinction because I don't want other people jumping into Detroit proper after hearing my story, because Detroit is an amazing city. I owe my freedom to it, but I personally feel more comfortable investing in suburban Detroit because the infrastructure is better. Prices are still quite low, but you have less of a risk as an out-of-state investor just because there aren't the issues with crime and those other things. And I'm a huge, huge fan of suburban Detroit as an investment vehicle. I mean, we bought properties. Our My least expensive property was $28,000. It was a three-bedroom, basically move-in ready house in a great neighborhood, great schools. I To this day, I don't understand how those properties got so devalued, but Detroit was hit really, really hard by the um, Great Recession and is just now climbing out. So properties were just really, really undervalued for a really long time. Um, and they were in, I mean, if you if you do the analysis, it's staggering how undervalued the properties were and still are in lots of parts of suburban Detroit. Right. And so for us, the main criteria, because we focus on renting to pilots and flight attendants, was for those, think of it kind of like Airbnb for pilots and flight attendants, is proximity to the airport and safety. And so as long as they're within a five or 10 minute drive of the airport and the properties are safe, and we've never had a single issue, knock on wood, in any of our properties, then we have no problem filling them with pilots and flight attendants. Mm. So in terms of like that $28,000 property, how much would you say that appreciated to, do you still own that? Like what's the value of that? I still own that. Yeah. So now I'm on the whole, I don't like to sell things tip. So I have not sold anything, <laughs> but the property in New York was, it really broke my heart to sell that one. So now I realize I'm just someone who should just buy and hold forever type of, I mean, or for a very long time. So we still have that one. That one has appreciated the least of all of our properties. So now I could probably sell it for about, I think forty-five or fifty thousand, probably fifty, and maybe a bit more if I sold it as kind of a, you know, leave it furnished and you can just keep running our business out of it because it's quite profitable. Um, but yeah, that so that one was appreciated too. Yeah, if I just sold it as like a regular empty house, I would say forty-five to fifty thousand. And then what is the kind of income on that, right? So you still have a? Do you have a mortgage on that? Did you buy that outright? Bought that cash because it was it was only twenty eight thousand, yeah, and then put a little bit of money into it to fix it up and make it ready. You know, I had to furnish it, and there were a couple other. I don't even remember what couple little cosmetic things we had to do to that one, like painting the kitchen cabinets, things like that. And it makes. Let me see. I have my little rent roll right here. That property makes about thirteen hundred dollars a month. So good, good margins. And that's our, I would say the, again, it was the cheapest one. It's probably our least successful, but the most successful on the flip side is a property I bought in Atlanta, maybe two or three years ago for $56,000. It's now I could easily sell it for 200 and um, it makes about 20, let's see, what does that one make? I would say about 2,200 a month. This is after paying um, the mortgage or not though. There's no mortgage. There's no mortgage. Amazing. Yeah. There's no mortgage. Yeah, I bought it cash thanks to the property. Yeah, yeah. It's a very unique niche niche that we've identified. 
but there, those niches are out there for everybody. Think about, you know, what you know well. Again, my husband was a pilot and we realized there's this whole community of people who live in one place and are crew based in another city and need a place, what they call a crash pad, where they just live when they're on duty and need to be able to get to the airport. It's kind of like being on call as a doctor, but they call it being on reserve. And so about 60% of airline employees are commuters, meaning that they live in a city other than where they're based for work. And they need a crash pad where they can just have some stuff, sleep between trips, um, cook a meal. It's like a home away from home. So that's what uh, I provide, what we provide. Mm. And so in Atlanta, it's been quite lucrative, but it's much more competitive in Atlanta than Detroit. I haven't expanded as quickly in Atlanta just because it's a bit too competitive for my blood. So I've focused more on more traditional rentals in Atlanta, but we do have that one crash pad that's very successful. Right. I mean, and there's the opportunity there, like if you really wanted to turn this into, you know, and expand your territories, right? Like and and venture out into other markets, it's, it's possible. And what I do love is like the opportunity, right? The opportunity for people to see where in their life right now that there's gaps, right? And so a lot of times we assume that, well, if it was like that profitable or going to be successful, people would have done it already, or there'd be a million people doing it. But because so many people have ideas and never follow through and think the same thing, a lot of things actually are not getting done. So if you see there's a gap where, and yes, we're talking about real estate here, but there are other, way, other ways to um, like monetize or to optimize whatever's happening or your skill set or just something you know that the regular population does not. Like you're having a husband as a pilot and understanding that that life was so helpful with you guys and your real estate um, investing. So I just feel like there's a lot of opportunities for that for so many people listening. And then you just have to kind of just dig deep and think about what is something I can like do that I've been too afraid to really think through or think of just, you know, start really think about thinking about what that would look like. Yeah, absolutely. And I can give another, a couple other examples. Like we, my husband read the four hour work week and that's what kind of started us on thinking about side hustles and other ways to make money outside of W2 and we started with stuff. I mean, he was flipping sneakers, which sounds crazy, but he would, you know, really hot, hard to get uh, sneakers. Nikes in particular would drop in Atlanta and he would get them and then sell them on eBay for two or three times what he had bought them for. And he had a whole side business. He was making thousands of dollars doing this. And that's when we started to think like, okay, you can take something that you're passionate about. If you really love sneakers or you really are into cars, or there's something that you uniquely know a lot about. I have great instincts for real estate for whatever reason. And just ride that train. And I haven't bought anything in about two years in terms of real estate because we haven't found deals. And so now I'm looking for what is the next big thing or next opportunity. I don't know what it is yet, but I'm always open to ways to kind of grow my income, grow our income and create opportunity or seize opportunity. And so it won't be necessarily the same thing for your whole life or career. You know, it might be flipping sneakers for two years and okay, that market kind of fizzles out. Okay, now we're going to do real estate and just always having, I think, multiple streams of income and always having your eyes and ears open for things that could potentially help you increase your income, I think, helps you get to fire quickly, more quickly. Right. So it's your husband was flipping uh, sneakers as a pilot? Uh, was he flying at that time? His career is a little bit convoluted because becoming a pilot is a long and tricky process. So I think at that time he was actually working for an airline in um, a professional capacity, so like in the business office. He wasn't actually flying. 
Okay, I just I just brought that up because I always like envision and see pilots when I fly is so like, you know, put together and stuffy. And I just feel like selling sneakers is, I think, a cool thing. So I just thought that was um, like an interesting, like cool kind of just comparison. And also just shows you, you can be multi-talented and passionate about things. Like just because you're in a career in one field, right? Like doesn't mean like you can't totally go a different way for your side hustle and for something else that you're doing on the, you know, at night. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it, I mean, he wasn't it wasn't like he was meeting people in dark alleys. It was always through eBay and shipping, you know, <laughs> so that that's another element of it, you know. But mm-hmm, yeah, just follow opportunity. That would be my biggest takeaway there. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to financial independence, so when you started buying these properties in cash, did you know that that was what you were doing? Like purposely, like, okay, I'm going to reach financial independence. Did you know that was a thing? Or did you find about the movement and like more about it after the fact? That's a great question. I, it was kind of after the fact. So I, like I said, we were, I was doing a lot of the things that are preached about in the financial independence movement before I knew about the movement. So things like house hacking, like renting out, I had a two bedroom and like trying to make money off of my second bedroom and then becoming a landlord. Uh, living frugally, frugally. I mean, I taught myself to cook solely so that I could eat the things I wanted, but not have to pay to go out to eat when I was making 35,000 in New York and just really didn't have money to do a lot of stuff. So yeah, I was, I think living the fire values before I knew about the fire movement. And then I don't know exactly when, but I discovered Mr. Money Mustache and Paula Pants afford anything about the same time. I want to say maybe probably just shortly before we be- I became financially independent, um, which was in 2015, I discovered those blogs and really started to do the math and think about, okay. And it also helped that or hurt that I was in a terrible job around that same time too. So I had this sense of desperation, like I cannot keep doing this. I have to, I was, I was just so miserable in the job that I was in. And so then I started to look to ways to um, minimize our lifestyle. So that's when we moved back into our rental unit and um, our monthly housing expenses went from 2,400 a month to about $800 a month just for like rent or mortgage. Um, And that's when I really realized, oh my gosh, we easily make enough from the rental income that we're free. Like neither of us ever have to work again if we live in this townhome. And then I retired. My husband kept working because he loves his job. And an interesting thing happened when I retired, so to speak, I call it free tired because I, you know, I chose to retire, didn't have to. People started contacting me about roles. So I was consulting and then I kept getting offered jobs that were tempting. And so I, I, the job I'm in now is one that I probably never would have considered if I was relying solely on a W-2 income because it's, like I said, it's a sales role account. I'm an account manager type of role but within the same field I've been working in, but I'd always assumed I can't do sales. Like that's not my personality. And I love it. I love um, the the freedom and um, autonomy that is in a sales role because you really, you write your own ticket. Your income is unlimited. You uh, have a lot of control over how you structure your day. I work remotely from my home office in Atlanta uh, it's really a great job. And I feel like being financially free allowed me to take a risk on a, on a role that I normally wouldn't have probably considered. And now we're back to having two W2 incomes, which is helping us build 
towards fat fire, I would say. Yeah. And, you know, here's the thing. This is like this kind of where they say like the people who have money, like just they usually get more money. The people without, unfortunately, tend to stay stuck. Like the rich keep getting richer. And I and part of that is like opportunities and exposure and all these things. Right. But there is something to be said for because I've seen it. Like I've seen it based on just like interviews. I've seen it in my own life. Like when I didn't necessarily when like I walked away from my corporate job and we're still in the, in the, or I'm still in the midst of like building up this business to make it profitable. But as I have stepped away and not needed like money as much because we've set ourselves up well, it's like more opportunities have come to me. Yeah. It's weird how that works. Yeah. And I feel like it's such an energy and I know it's like woo woo. And sometimes like it's people, it's like, whatever, like, you know, obviously, um, you know, you have all these things going for you, but I literally do think like, that's why like the wealth part of it, it is like, it is an energy of like, cause, cause when you are in a scarcity mindset or you are making decisions based out of fear and cause you have to. And I think that reflects in how you interact in the world. It reflects on the opportunities you don't see. And yeah. And so I just think that it's like, this is one of those things where trying to teach people that even if you don't have the, let's say you do want to get into real estate, you don't have the eight rental properties yet, or you're, you don't have the six figure income yet. How can you just from where you are today start um, seeing things in your life differently so that you can attract and, and not just attract like just, you know, woo woo, just like it appears out of nowhere. But sometimes that's what it, it's like. It does appear out, out of nowhere because of how you see it. Like something, you know what I mean? Like I just think it's fascinating. I agree 100%. And like the woo woo is real. Like we, we downplay it, but I have to say like energy does make a difference in attracting abundance into your life, having financial security. Like to your point, if you come from a place that there's more than enough and my cup runneth over, your cup really does runneth over, you know? And if you focus on being grateful for what you do have and how you can give more than what you're taking, it seems like just in my brief experience on this planet, like the universe rewards that. And the more you're kind of in alignment with what you're supposed to be doing, uh, things flow and people are attracted to it. Jobs are attracted to it. Money are, are attracted to it. It's weird how it works, but it, that seems to be how success flows. Yeah, yeah. And I love that you're still like working. So what drives you to continue working? Because at this point, you don't have to like actively work. You can live off the income from your rental properties. But what drives you to say, all right, I'm gonna keep doing something. I'm gonna keep doing this. I mean, quite frankly, I like making money. I want to be really wealthy so that I can give back and create generational wealth for the people who come behind me. Um, so I would love to have a bunch of trust fund babies, you know, like I, I want to build wealth and I like my job. So the minute I am no longer getting joy from my job, of course I have days that suck or people get on my nerves, but when you're working remotely and you're making really good money, that's a pretty sweet place to be because I don't have to, even if someone annoys me, I just get off the phone with them and then I don't have to deal with them for the rest of the day. Right. You don't have to see them at the water cooler. <laughs> exactly. So I'm a huge fan of remote work, again, especially for people of color and women. And it also is kind of an equalizer and that people are less focused on what I look like and more what I deliver. I'm just a voice most of the time. We do a lot of video conferences too, but it's interesting how my career has, <laughs> you know, really taken off. People aren't looking at me every day. And I don't want to say that that's racism or sexism, but it's something to be said also just for the numbers speaking for themselves, which sales does. Because when you're 333% to goal, people really can't say much to you other than keep it up and can we give you more money? <laughs> so 
I'm, I think I got off on a tangent there, but yes, yeah, so I choose to work just because I like to make money quite honestly. And I'm trying to build a legacy where I can give back. And it's kind of like, why not? I got bored when I was retired. I was retired for about six months and I was volunteering and I just, I got bored. I felt like, ah, you know, you can only travel so much and volunteer so much. So when a, the right position presented itself, I went for it and I've been happily working in that role for over three years and could see myself working in it indefinitely just cause it's, it's great, you know? So mm-hmm. and I love like, just like boldly saying, I want to make money. And I think so many people are afraid to say that and for whatever reasons, and a lot of that comes back to limiting beliefs around money and believing that wanting more and asking for more and being a millionaire and making a lot of money makes you not as great of a person. But I really think once people can really be honest with themselves, because some people don't really care about how much they spend or how much they make, that's fine. Um, I know, like, I'm one of those people where, you know, and this is some of the stuff that's going to be changing in terms of like the content we're journey to launch is boldly saying, you know what, I do want to make a lot of money. I do want to provide a certain lifestyle and education in terms of just like experiences. More for me, it's experiences, but for my children. And I'm not going to be like a shy around that. Like this is my experience, right? Because I know there's so many other people who are like myself and you who are attracted to the idea of financial independence. And it's great that frugality and you have to use certain things like frugality in certain parts of your journey and in overall, right? It's value-based spending, what you care about, what you can save on so you can reach your goals. But also there are people who are saying, okay, but how can I focus on earning more so I can really live the lifestyle that I want, right? Not based and be just uh, constricted to the lack of income or a smaller income. Exactly. And, and for me, it just, it boils down to freedom. The more money you have, the more freedom you have to make choices, to turn away from a job you don't like, or move away from a city you are not happy in. If the goal is freedom, why not have as much of it as you can, you know? And you can also give back and help other people. And I really do feel the more of us, again, going back to women, people of color who are free financially, the more we kind of elevate the whole community to make choices that are different, you know, like, pursue what really gives you joy as opposed to just what pays the bills. And um, there's a lot of power in having that kind of freedom. Right. And so one of the other things I just want to kind of close on is like, I know you said you're going to continue to work. You want to reach fat fire. So just for anyone who's just um, coming up upon these concepts. So like lean fire, like there's, there's certain numbers around it, but like, if we just want to give some numbers, lean fire. So financial independence, can mean like you, you know, you're frugal, so you don't need to spend as much. So in turn, how much you save and invest doesn't need to be as much. So like if you want to spend $40,000 a year that somebody might consider that lean fire, right? So how much you save and invest to reach that goal is not as as much as fat fire, like what um, Erica is talking about, or something that I'm working towards is where you're spending a lot more based on your values. So that means you do have to either create more streams of income passively or actively or save and invest a lot more. So in terms of you now, right, you have, I think you said you have like $9,000 worth of passive income, your husband works. So you have income from that. What are your future goals? Like, is there, is there a point where you'll say like, wow, like this is, I'm good. Like, or are you just going to keep going because you enjoy what you do? So you're not focused on necessarily a certain number. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I'm focused on a certain number. I, I just want to keep going and keep flowing and see where this journey takes me. I mean, I would love to have multiple millions of dollars in terms of net worth so that I can be in a position where I can, you know, maybe endow scholarships or like I said, create trust funds, things like that. 
I don't know what the future holds, but I'm going to just keep flowing with where, you know, following the opportunity because that's kind of how life has worked for me um, and save as much as I can. And then when opportunity strikes, I will have the capital to, you know, take advantage of those opportunities. Um, but yes, the short answer would be the goal is to just be, you know, I would say a multimillionaire and then be able to give back and really impact the community beyond my specific family. Um, and just spread the word as well. Like I feel kind of an imperative, like now that I'm free to free other people and spread the word, like, yo, like this is something you can do and you need to do. And it really does change your life and how you're living your life because you're not obligated to do much of anything. And when things are a choice versus an obligation or a necessity, life becomes a lot better. Mm. And I love going and flowing and seeing the opportunities right in front of you. Right now, I am pretty sure of it, journeyers. There is something in front of you that you maybe have not seen or afraid to to reach and grab. But there's something right now that might not look like your ultimate it doesn't have to be your ultimate. It's a stepping stone to the next thing. And so you really do need to unfold with that. And like uh, Erica's saying, go and flow. And don't be afraid to raise your hand and take risk that you can bear. But like, you know, you have to step out there. Um, So Erica, I thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. I know for a fact, this will help a lot of people. And you know, I, I don't think you're on social or you don't have a blog or anything like that, right? I don't, but people are welcome to, if they want to reach out to you, Feel free to share my LinkedIn or my um, email. I'm always happy to chat with people and share whatever advice I can or encouragement that I can. And yeah, just keep doing what you're doing. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed our conversation and I, I love your podcast. And hopefully we'll, you know, the fire will keep spreading and we'll have more and more people who look like us who are financially free and retiring early. Oh, for sure. That's the goal. Thank you so much, Erica. Thank you. really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Erica. Again, I was totally drawn into Erica's story because she reminded me so much of myself, especially the story about her buying her property at such a young age and just going for it. And also how she increased her salary within the same company, but just by networking, just by by believing that she could do the things that she thought she could, right? And so you have these thoughts in your head, probably these visions of the things you want, and sometimes you say, oh, forget it. That's too hard or that can't be done. But I'm telling you, it can be. Erica is living proof of that. I'm living proof of that. And I have countless other guests who were not born with money or even if they had money and whatever that looks like, they created the life they have. They created their financial freedom and independence. And you can do that too. So hope you now have even more fuel some more motivation for your rocket to take off once again don't forget doors the money launch club are now open now is your chance to invest in yourself so that you can reach your financial goals and dreams and meet people just like yourself who are wanting to do the same thing doors close end of day november 8th if you're listening to this in real time 2019 so go to moneylaunchclub.com as always, I appreciate you. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. So if you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, don't forget to leave that review. Also, it doesn't matter where you listen, right? So you can listen to this literally anywhere on the website at journeytolaunch.com slash episode 125. You can listen to this on YouTube, 
Spotify, Stitcher, on your Android phone to whatever Android device you're listening to. So let's just say you want to say to someone, hey, you listen, you need to listen to this episode or Journey to Launch. Just basically, if they have an Android, tell them to go to journeytolaunch.com slash Android. If they have an Apple phone, they can go to journeytolaunch.com slash Apple podcast and or just go to the Apple uh, podcast app on their phone. So super easy to be able to find. It's just trying to educate people to find the podcast. And so I appreciate when you guys are doing that. Don't forget to tag me on social media at Journey to Launch. If you're listening to the episode, let me know that you're listening, what you took away from it. And I can't wait to talk to you next week. All right. Until next week. Keep on journeying, journeyers. Journeyers.